Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. It's a beautiful, cloudless day in my neighborhood of Kitsilano in Vancouver. There are a few hardy souls in there swimming. Lots of windsurfers, skimboarders, children up to their ankles, and a few folks with nets out for smelt. On a gorgeous day like this, the beach is a magnet for people who shuck their clothes and strut their stuff. It's the ocean that makes this an idyllic scene. Water, from the glimmer of its surface to the riddle of its depths, it fascinates us. We can take it for granted, and it vanishes transparently into the background. And yet, we need water. We are water. As part of our special series, Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective, David Suzuki takes us deep into the mystery. It's like the deepest twilight, or the earliest dawn light, below a thousand feet. It is truly dark. And that's the way the ocean is everywhere, all the time. And yet it's not completely dark. Because just as in a starry night, you see what look like stars, moons, planets, it's bioluminescent life. Most creatures in the deep sea have some form of making their own light. Water is a medium for the songs of whales. It's, it's anywhere from 18 to 20 minutes, the actual song, but they'll sing for hours and hours and hours and hours. Yeah. And it's an intimate partner in the lives of indigenous communities, even as its power is harnessed for electricity. My fear is that uh, the social, the cultural aspect will be lost, you know, that uh, the, we won't be able to scoop fish anymore. As David Suzuki says, whatever we do to water, we do to ourselves. And we begin at the beginning. Oh, you're having a baby. Oh. For Jordan McCormick, Giving birth to her daughter in water seemed to be the natural thing to do. Have a listen to her birthing experience. Oh my God! I've always been drawn to water. The feeling of buoyancy, of not having to heft around my body, it just, it, it made so much sense to me. As a pregnant woman, I would go swimming and it just feels so nice in the water and as soon as those contractions hit, boy, you, you just, uh, there's nothing that can beat floating and allowing your your body to to do what it wants to do let you know letting nature take over now i want to ask you oh 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 o
Let's put the cord down. Oh, that's honey. exactly right, darling. Exactly. You're so little. <laughs> You're so tiny. Oh, there's your eyes. Oh, just for your baby up. I know, I know. I Thank feel you. the same way. Oh, Keep your baby know. nice and warm. I know. What I wonder, I can't speak. I'm just reminded of my own grandson being born nine months ago. Jordan and Greg McCormick of Bowmanville, Ontario, named their little girl Fiona Beatrice. Without water, life on Earth could not exist. It inflates every cell, enables metabolism to take place, transports hormones, oxygen, and life-replenishing molecules and wastes. And the saltiness of our blood is about the same as the saltiness of the oceans. Before we dip into the ocean, let's zoom in and take a close look at that mysterious molecule that is so critical to life. So, here we are, staring at a water molecule. Kind of looks like a silhouette of Mickey Mouse's head from behind. The big circle that is the head is the oxygen, and the two ears are the hydrogens. The hydrogens have a small positive charge. The oxygen has a small negative charge. And it's this asymmetrical clustering of the two hydrogens, the ears, that gives water its powerful properties. A water molecule is like a tiny magnet, and the positive end is attracted to the negative end of other water molecules. This attraction is called a hydrogen bond, and isn't nearly as strong as two atoms that are chemically bonded together. So the hydrogen bonds are very fleeting. Okay, well, so long. See you. You too. Take care. In fact, they form and break millions of times every second. It means that water is constantly forming these fleeting bonds with their neighbors, and that sets the stage for incredible overall stability which allows it to withstand a huge range of temperatures. Compare that to ammonia, one atom of nitrogen hooked to three hydrogens, which has a boiling temperature of minus 33 degrees C. Water, because of the amazing and constantly shifting hydrogen bonding, can keep taking more and more heat without boiling. And when water freezes, it doesn't form nice symmetrical crystals in the way most compounds do. And the space created around and between the molecules means ice is lighter than liquid water and floats. This is crucial because the ice preserves the heat left in the oceans and lakes beneath it. And that has huge implications for life on Earth. And one final miracle of H2O. Thanks to those fast-moving hydrogen bonds, it's an incredible solvent, making it an excellent medium to move things around in living organisms. 70% of our bodies is made up of it. 
Our cells are inflated by water. Molecules are transported within and between cells by water. Metabolic processes, chemical reactions that make life possible, all occur in the medium of water. And of course, the flow of blood carrying carbon dioxide, oxygen and nutrients is what allows us to receive our nutrients and eliminate our wastes. Something to think about next time you dip your toe in the ocean. It's clear to Sylvia Earle, no ocean, no life. She's an internationally renowned scientist, a marine biologist by training, whose groundbreaking research and exploration of our oceans over the past five decades has earned her the nickname of Her Deepness. In 1979, she walked on the ocean floor 400 meters below the surface, a record for a woman that has yet to be challenged. Prior to that, in 1970, just a year after Neil Armstrong had walked on the moon, she led an all-female team of scientists who lived in an underwater habitat for two weeks. Perhaps there is no one living right now who has more of a sense of the magic that happens in the underwater world than Sylvia Earle. I asked her to describe to me what it is like to go deep under the surface of the ocean. Oh, David, I wish I could just scoop all the listeners aboard <laughs> and go for a dive. Going into the ocean should not seem scary. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful things that anybody can do. Diving in, in a little submarine, first of all, you can breathe just as you do on the surface. Most little submarines, <laughs> it's more like getting into a little car. And the air is much the same, same pressure as you have. The pressure is, you're protected from it by the submersible that you're in. And at the surface, at least when you're offshore or in a, a place that is in pretty good shape, the water's clear and blue. Go down to 100 feet, it gets bluer as you descend. And but at dark a, blue. 500 feet dark blue. Yes. At 500 feet it's indigo and you, you lose track of the shades of blue that, that it turned but all darker and darker until it's it's like the deepest twilight or the, the earliest dawn light. And then finally below a thousand feet it is truly dark and that's the way the ocean is everywhere all the time and yet it's not completely dark. Because just as in a starry night, you see what look like stars, moons, planets. It's bioluminescent life. Most creatures in the deep sea, most I say, it's 90% or so, have some form of making their own light. The jellies, the little copepods, and fish that have lights down the side like little miniature ocean liners. Now, are there just occasional dots here and there, or is it just filled with, with little... Uh pockets of light. Well, there's life everywhere, especially microbial life that abounds wherever there's water, it appears, in the ocean at least. But it's patchy. There's some places that are far more conspicuously alive or filled with life than others. But I haven't seen any place that is totally devoid of life. Sometimes you have to think small to see it, but it's there. But if you switch on the lights from the submarine, what do you mm. see? As the archaeologist who opened up King Tut's tomb <laughs> said famously, 
wonderful things. Wonderful things are out there. The creatures that don't occur on the land. About 30, some say about 35 major divisions of life occur on the planet as a whole. Only about half are represented on the land. Isn't it strange? Here we are in the 21st century, and we can't even get to the bottom of the ocean. We've been to the moon since then, <laughs> several yeah, times. Yeah, I, I find that staggering. I, I didn't realize it. No one's and beyond that, that, astronauts, it's a little tricky going up high in the sky, too. <laughs> but it's worth it, and it's worth it to go deep in the sea. We need to understand this planet from the inside out. It's crazy. You know, we've seen less than 5% of the ocean. We've only mapped about 5% of the ocean with the same degree of detail that we have for the moon and Mars and Jupiter. What about this part of the solar system? Well, Sylvia, you are probably more than any other human being alive today uh, seen that world uh, more than anyone else, 6,000 hours underwater. In all of that time you've been down, are there any events or or scenes that, that are so memorable they immediately leap to your mind? I love encountering whales face-to-face. In the 70s, I was among the first to actually be able to have the privilege of doing that. It is possible, of course, to recognize individual whales, individual fish, too. There are no two fish, no two starfish, no two whales, no two humans, cats, dogs, horses that are exactly alike. If you really know what to look for, you can see they have individual characteristics and personalities. So, Having a chance to do that is among the most memorable experiences of my life. Having a chance to live underwater, to stay there for days, weeks at a time, has been a breakthrough for me to understand what it's like to, in a way, think like a fish, to be there long enough to get to know the neighborhood, if you will. Now, tell me about and, that. You were, you lived for two weeks in a an underwater uh, something or other with a... Laboratory. <laughs> yes, in 1970? Right. That was the first time. I've done it actually nine times, most recently. It's been a while, a few years ago, but to the Aquarius Underwater Laboratory that's down in the Florida Keys was the most recent experience there. Six people can stay for a week or so, hmm. breathing air. It's compressed, so it's hard to whistle against the pressure gradient, but otherwise it feels pretty much the same as it does at the surface. But being down there around the clock, I mean, yeah. that's a very different way of looking at that world from... Oh, you a... can swim out anytime you want. It's uh-huh. great. It's a big swimming pool. You just jump in whenever you want. But do you see, think you see things uh, that, that one couldn't see just by scuba diving for an hour and a half or so? Absolutely. That's It's the gift of time. Here's the thing. How can we not want to know What's keeping us from exploring the ocean? We invest so much in going skyward, and we should, but we really need to know how this planet works. It takes care of us. It's time for us to seriously take care of it. It's true. I mean, uh, an alien from outer space coming to this planet would certainly name it water, not Earth. I mean, And they dive right in. And, <laughs> yes. So, uh, and, and if you, as you say, we've only mapped 5% of it... Uh, Wow, we are so ignorant, and yet we seem willing to apply a lot of our techno- uh, technology to exploit whatever is down there. You know, yeah, when that's I, a problem. I went to high school in in the 1950s, revealing my 
age, but uh, <laughs> I remember vividly our high school civics teacher saying to the class, the oceans are filled with limitless protein. We can't catch the fish fast enough. I had this idea that fish just out of control and waiting for humans <laughs> to exploit them. Well, in the 1950s, it may have been true, but it sure isn't now. Tell us about the state of these great oceans about which we know so little. What's the state of the oceans today? Well, we know enough to know that the ocean is in trouble. We also know now, as we did not know in the middle of the 20th century, that the ocean is vulnerable to our actions. It's not just the water that matters, although that is fundamental. It's life in the water that shapes the chemistry, that provides safe haven for us in this universe where <laughs> we're yeah, there aren't too many places that we can look around and say, well, yes, if we use up the systems that keep us alive on Earth, there's another place we can go. Sylvia, we've seen the, the biology, the science of bluefin tuna indicate that they are in catastrophic shape that is over 90% are gone. And here we have meetings to try to come to grips with that and yet no willingness to try to protect them, to restore them to what they once were. I mean, uh, what, what is blocking us from, from facing the reality that we're driving these things to extinction? I'd like to think, the way Jane Goodall thinks, that there's reason for hope because humans have the capacity, like no other creature on the planet. When I was chief scientist at NOAA in the early 1990s, a little piece of paper came across my desk saying that bluefin tuna, according to the fishermen's own records, had declined by 90%. When was that this? Only 10, 1991. Wow. And those were the statistics then. And my reaction was, at a meeting that followed, what are we trying to do, exterminate them? Because if we are, we're doing a great job. We've only got 10% left to go. That's when they started calling me the Sturgeon General. <laughs> <laughs> they said, I know, I, I was just trying to make a point speaking for the fish. Somebody has to. They're not at the negotiating tables that are determining their fate. I was in Skiji, you know, the largest fish market in the world. In yes, Japan. I've been there too. And, you know, you see the hundreds of uh, bluefin tuna and sharks and swordfish that are coming in every day. And you think... How can the oceans do this? Now, you talk to any, any of the people there that are, you know, they do the cutting of the bluefin tuna in a very ritualized way. I know. Uh, like a samurai thing with a big sword. And I said to these guys, what were the tuna like 30 years ago when you first started the business? Oh, well, you know, there were lots more and they were cheaper and they were, you know, they were bigger. They know. They can see it. And I kept saying to people over there, what is Japan without fish? And yet, those fish are jeopardized within a generation. They're not going to have anything. And they don't even seem to care. Here's the thing. With the new technologies that didn't exist half a century ago, people can track down tuna and other ocean creatures to their last hideaways, their last safe havens. We need networks of protected areas all over the world that will give creatures a break, give us a break. The thing that people are missing is how dependent our lives are on maintaining the integrity of natural systems. Tuna are part of our life support system, and I don't mean to eat. I mean because their role in the ocean as predators is part of what makes the ocean function. I think of the ocean as the blue heart of the planet. 
We have a short time frame right now. This is perhaps the most important time ever because for the first time, we're beginning to understand, and it may be the last time, that we have a chance. If we fail to take care of tuna, like right now, we're going to lose them. If we fail to take care of sharks, we're going to lose them. And in the process, we're losing the integrity of systems that we don't know how to put back together again once they become unraveled, and they are in the process of becoming unraveled. Should we stop eating? For those of us that really care, should we stop eating fish? I have. Partly for my own health. The fish are touted as being so healthy, but when you think about what they have in them that you don't want in you, that it doesn't, fish don't come with labels that give you the mercury content, the fire retardant levels and all of that. Don't think of what we take out of the sea as harvesting. That's just clouds the issue. We're hunters out there. We're taking from wild systems, and we're messing things up in the process. We should seriously think about doing is looking around in the ocean, identifying critical areas, the seagrass meadows, the coral reefs, the deep coral reefs, places that are still in pretty good shape, and then embrace them with protection. Just, just in those areas, at least curb the destructive fishing practices, the trawling, the long lines, the drift nets, all those, all those destructive means that take not only the species that they're targeting, they take whatever happens to grab a hook, like birds or other species that are simply wasted, and the trawls, like using a bulldozer to catch songbirds. You, you scrape away the forest and you throw it away, just shake out a few pounds of protein, everything else dies. Now you say that we, we should be having more and more protected areas. The oceans cover 70% of the planet. What percent of the oceans do we actually protect from that kind of depredation? Presently, on the land with national parks and reserves and other protected areas, the figure is about 12%. Not enough, really, but it's a good start. But in the ocean, it's a fraction of 1%. Really? A tiny fraction where even the fish are safe. In the United States, there's a network of marine sanctuaries, but they really aren't what the word suggests. They aren't safe havens for wildlife. They're, mul they're multiple-use areas, more like national forests, where commercial exploitation is allowed, but it's somewhat restricted. That helps, but it doesn't help nearly as much as having even small, but preferably large areas where you've got a cross-section of the integrity of these natural systems functioning the way they did when you were a child, David, when I was a child. And, and that's, I, that's what I do with the organization that I just started called Mission Blue, We're working with the National Geographic, working with conservation organizations, working with you to be a voice for those who can't speak for themselves. If we don't really begin a major program to change this impact on the oceans, within the lifetimes of our children and grandchildren, they're headed for some pretty, uh, a pretty bleak future. What will happen to the oceans? Well, the projections are pretty straightforward. If we continue taking at the level that we now are, considering we've lost 90% of many of the big creatures in the sea in the last 50 years, it won't take 50 years to get rid of all of them if that's our objective. Or we have 
on the flip side, positive side, 10% remain, so we still have a chance. There's no chance left for the monk seal that once lived in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. The last one was seen in 1952. But there is hope for the rest, for the two species that live in Hawaii and the Mediterranean. There's hope for tunas. We haven't eaten them all yet. Right now, about half of the coral reefs in the world are still in pretty good shape, at least the shallow water ones that we know and love. The bad news is that in 50 years, we've lost half of them. Follow those trends. How long, with acidification and the warming trend and other forms of exploitation, taking the other elements out of coral reefs, the groupers, the snappers, part of what makes a coral reef function of the fish, of course, then it won't take 50 years to get rid of coral reefs completely. Sylvia, keep going for uh, as, as hard as you can. You're my hero, and uh, I think we've got to get that message out. Thank you very much for joining me and uh, sharing these ideas. Thank you, David. Let's go diving. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm on. David Suzuki in conversation with Sylvia Earle, legendary oceanographer. On Ideas, you're listening to Suzuki's Survival Guide at Retrospective. For this episode, we're dipping into his 2010 series, The Bottom Line. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot of speculation, but no one knows for sure... What's being communicated when whales sing to one another? One thing is certain. The sound resonating through the water when heard by humans can provoke a powerful response. I was really young and I heard a recording of a humpback whale singing. I think it was the first time as a kid I had an emotional response to a sound. I had never experienced that before. And yeah, I just, my heart, everything, I actually, I'm, I started to cry the second time I heard it. I actually recorded it. It was actually on TV, so I managed to record it. And uh, I had it on my little red tape recorder in my bedroom, and I would just play it over and over. And I would just, yeah, it just really affected me. I did not understand why. I didn't know. So I was probably nine when that happened. And um, just always was fascinated by whales, especially from that moment on. That's Janie Ray. She's a whale researcher who lives on Gill Island in British Columbia with her husband, Herman Muter. The couple has spent nine years watching and listening to the whales in the waters near the inside passage. They live in a small wooden cabin they built themselves. The lights and computers inside are powered by a small hydro generator they set up in a nearby stream and solar panels. 
Their nearest neighbors can be found in the village of Hartley Bay, a 30-kilometer boat ride away. They've named their home, which is also their lab, Cetacea Lab, because it is fully dedicated to the study of cetacean species, whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Freelancer Maribeth Dean stepped into their world. First stop, the place Herman calls Sea Lion Rock. A group of trains in Orca around here. They were coming, they were coming from the west side of Ashland, heading south, and then they headed straight for the Sea Lion Rocks, and it was a low tide and they were going in between the big rock and the small rock and it was a group of six whales and they were just patrolling and they were freaking out the whole colony but the sea lions most of them would not jump in the water they were just really they were freaked out but they didn't go in the water although a few of them did but there was no chasing they would, the whales were just patrolling probably just sniffing out and how many are on the rocks and whatnot it was very interesting to watch Herman's just about to turn on the engine of his boat when he spots a humpback headed in this direction. In fact, there are two of them, an adult and a juvenile. Their tails fluke above the water as they approach. As they glide past the rock, about 15 meters away, their dorsal fins pop out and their backs arch just over the water's surface. Herman pulls out his camera. That's a pretty good idea picture of this wheel. Pretty sure that Janie will know who this is. Janie Ray is back at home, keeping warm by the wood stove and drinking coffee. That warbly sound you hear in the background, that's the sound of the ocean around their cabin. They've placed underwater microphones in strategic locations nearby so they can constantly monitor the action under the waves. Janie loads Herman's photos onto her computer and says the whale at Sea Lion Rock was a female named Bernard. Um, some whales, like Bernard, for example, very boat shy, especially when she arrives with a calf. You have to really stay away from her. And so we have some really good dorsal pictures of Bernard, so we can ID her with her dorsal instead of having to get in behind her. To get this fluke picture, of course, you have to go in behind the whale. Janie's named 150 of the local humpbacks. I can ID humpbacks, like I can just see them and I know exactly who they are right away. And Herman would be the same with an orca. But the other way around, he probably won't recognize a humpback like I would. And I won't recognize an orca physically, I won't recognize an orca. Acoustically, I can recognize orcas quite well. The sounds picked up by the underwater microphones blare through every room in the house. The song, the average, is anywhere from 18 to 20 minutes, the actual song, but they'll sing for hours and hours and hours and hours. Okay. Yeah. So we're almost at 12 hours straight. When they're not listening, Herman and Janie are watching whales. Days when the water is calm are spent in the boat. When I'm on the water and I'm close to them, I just feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, I just feel present when I'm with them. When they, when they do actually come close to the boat for that moment in time, it's just like everything stops. It's just, you're just in awe of this energy that's, that's coming towards you from the water. It's, it's not just their size. I mean, they are huge, but there's more to it than that. I, I think you really feel like you're encountering or in, you're close to another species on this planet that is 
extremely evolved and intelligent and it's somewhat checking you out. Janie stays alert all night just to listen. She wakes Herman if she hears any interesting activity. The sound of a tanker passing through these waters can last for hours. Usually what what we learned um, with every cetacean species is, uh, may it be humpbacks or or oka, as soon as a boat is entering an area where they're calling, they just get quiet. You know, they just uh, they just wait for the boat to to pass by and then I call again which is which is you know if you think about whales being acoustic animals and especially for for uh, orcas in family bonds that have to be in contact acoustic wise to know where each family member is there's a lot of boat noise it some must be sometimes hard to know where each family member is For now, the sound of big ships rumbling through the area is relatively rare. If there's a pipeline built from the Alberta oil sands to the coast, oil-filled supertankers will meander through the narrow straits and passages in this region every day of the year. But what we also have to face is we're hearing these whales right now singing in wheel channel. Hardly any boat noise. Boat noise. There's, it's quiet most of the time. It's, it's a, it's a haven for them to, to start singing or practicing singing. What we think they do. If these tankers are coming, this is going to stop. You know, this area being still such an important area for them, and in order to sing, to communicate, and and feed. Once, if, I'd say, if these tankers are coming. We are going to not be listening to this. We are only going to be listening to tankers every single day. Our acoustic work will be finished. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt. Herman and Janie are working on a paper to provide scientific proof that humpbacks and orcas thrive in the waters around Gill Island. Herman says he hopes it will make some difference in protecting the whales. Yeah, if there's one thing that I, you know, I mean, you can call it passion or, or your, you know, your purpose in life and whatnot. If I can, if I can, you know, if I, if my being on this planet is, is doing any good towards the well-being of these whales, then I, I have fulfilled something. The waters surrounding Gill Island have recently been identified by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans as critical habitat for humpback whales. Data collected by Herman Mütter and Janie Ray contributed to that designation. My name is Adam Vancouverden. I'm on the Canadian National Canoe Kayak Team. I have a gold, silver and a bronze medal from the Olympic Games. The environment is important to me because it's the only one we've got and it's where I work and play. And I believe that the environment 
encompasses and includes the people who live in it, not just the animals, plants, water, and air. And I think to disregard the importance of those elements of nature is um, to reduce the importance of the health and well-being and sustainability of our human communities and, and our personal health and well-being. So, um, you know, I think we're all part of it. And uh, for me, that's the bottom line. From whale songs to water music, what you're hearing right now is music made from an instrument called a hydrolophone. Hello, my name is Ryan Jansen. I'm a composer, scientist, and uh, engineer, and uh, this is a hydrolophone. So it has water spraying out of it, 45 jets of water, and so you just have to put your, uh, put your finger on any of those jets. Each of them is tuned to a note in the scale, so there's a separate pipe for each water jet. The water running through the one meter long pipe is recycled through a bucket at the base of the tube. Some people say it, it sounds like the call of the loon in the wilderness. If you just take your finger and ease into that note, you can hear it go a little bit flat. And it has this, this wonderfully lonesome sound that, that really makes some interesting music, some really nice music. So we've had uh, concerts anywhere from, uh, we've had concerts in New York, but we've also had concerts in a forest. And it really, um, uh, with my compositions, I really like to take people to other worlds, whether that be some creation of, of the imagination or nature. Uh, different places around the world have such a, a character that, that can come through just these ethereal sounds. I think of life. Now, having that essence of life can physically come from water, but it, through music, it, it really evokes this sense of, of oneness with this imaginary natural world that you might be thinking of when you listen to music. So just having all of those things connected right at your fingertips or being immersed in water like we sometimes do when we play is, is just this... It gives this feeling of oneness all of a sudden. That was hydrolophone artist Ryan Jansen in Toronto. Water is a powerful force, and we humans are keen to use that power for electricity. The province of Quebec is leading the way in harnessing the force of the province's waterways to feed the ever-growing appetite for energy. Quebec emits the lowest levels of greenhouse gases per capita, which is credited to the fact that nearly half of the province's energy comes from hydropower. 
This, of course, isn't without consequence. To date, about 13,000 square kilometers of Quebec is flooded because of hydro dams. That's an area roughly 20 times as vast as the city of Toronto. The Rupert River is the latest river to be diverted for hydropower, leaving 30% of its original flow. Last summer, filmmaker Ernie Webb followed a group of Cree paddlers as they canoed the Rupert's 600 kilometers for the last time before it is changed forever. The documentary is called Down the Mighty River. Ernie Webb is in Montreal. Hello. Hello, Wajia. Good to talk to you. Glad to be here. So I'll jump right in here. Uh, I know that you've traveled virtually the entire length of the, the Rupert River, is that right? Pretty much, yeah. It was a new experience for me. Ah, uh, really? Yeah. So that experience must be pretty vivid in your mind. How would you describe the river to someone who hasn't been down that system? Well, the uh, Rupert River, we call it the uh, Washkaganish Sibi. The headwaters are uh, Mistissini Lake, which is one of the biggest lakes in the uh, northeast region. And it's 600 kilometers of pristine wilderness. Before the construction started, the only way you had access to it was either by canoe or by bush plane or, um, you know, if you were at one of the camps along the uh, the river system. Um but now, halfway down, they have the the the, uh, the diversion point, and so now they have uh, construction roads leading up to it, and you know, so they've opened it wide up. Uh huh. So if <clears throat> if a river has its own personality, how would you characterize the the Rupert? Well, it has many facets. It's got all these different personalities. You know, it sustains uh, it sustained the people, but then also one of the ladies that we talked to. The river took her husband. You know, he mm. uh, he had a heart attack uh, on the canoe and he he fell overboard. You know, and mm. so it it gives and it takes life. You mm -hmm. know, so it's uh, it's got all these different facets to it. But it is so remote. Did the Cree? Is that an important part of the Cree culture? I mean, were there villages on it or? Uh was it part of the trap lines? What, what role did that river play for the Cree? In Washkaganish, uh, which is at the mouth of the river, the first set of rapids inland, it's about uh, 30 kilometers. Uh, they call it New Demesanan, where the fish are. They practically scoop fish out of the water. Wow. And so all along, you have camps, you have uh, you know hunting cabins all along that river. Um, it's part of people's hunting territories. Now, you know, I, I first met up with the, the Quebec Cree. Gosh, this is a long time ago when uh, Matthew Kunkum was a Grand Chief. Yeah. And I remember the trip that they took in the Odiac, you know, with the mm -hmm. Inuit people all the way down to New York. And that was over Grand Balin, yeah. the Great Will uh, uh, project. I thought at that time they'd, the Cree's position was, look, no more dams. These rivers are important to our culture and our, our, our food. And, and um, so I was surprised at the, the, the change uh, that has gone on. I know it's not been an easy, uh, an easy decision. I, I wanted to play a little clip from your, your film, actually, yeah. to show that. Uh, can we play that right now? Tommy was wise. He was very gentle. And he was kind. And before Tommy passed away, 
Her young brother Philip had a dream about him. And this is what his dream was about. Come, I want to show you something. And the voice said to him, follow that trail up the mountain. Look toward the south. So when he looked toward the south, he saw the flooded part of the area coming and the voice said to him, look, that's only a small portion that you lose, but you gain a lot because you're helping the whole province, beyond the whole province, Canada, down south, you're giving a lot. Don't be sad, you still have your trap line, but you gain a whole lot when you give. What an incredibly powerful piece that is. Who, yeah. who was Tommy? Tommy was um, an elder who grew up uh, on his trap line, which is right... right. In, they've built the transfer tunnel, which they call it, on his territory. Um, the piece uh, where you heard that, uh, it, they were actually uh, dedicating this uh, lookout right where the transfer tunnel is on his hunting territory. So they were unveiling uh, plaques and, you know... Um, he had died by he, then. He, di he died, uh, like, last year or something. And that was... Who was that? He was the... Counting the... That was uh, one of his sons. So what so, was the impact of his words on the community? I think f for... It was mainly back in 2001 when the Peda Brave which is the new agreement was called uh it split the the cree cree nation practically and it split families as well and so you look at families you know and mm. you know just in when my uh, before my grandparents passed away they had a family uh picnic down by the shore and they did a group photo and there's about 300 people there and this is in a community of 4,000 people, you know, so you have tight-knit families. And so you had a lot of them that were split. Mm. And so for Tommy, he had the uh, Neposh clan. And so when they introduced the, uh, the agreement, you know, everybody had their, uh, you know, their opinions on what, whether it was, was good or bad and, you know. Mm. And so for Tommy, he told them, you know, that I see no future for the youth. I see no future for the young people. They need jobs. They need a, a stable future. And so he gave his blessing, you know, to allow mm. the work to happen on his trap line. And so eventually his whole family came together you know, because, you know, there's still families that are split over this. Yeah. But they managed to come together as one. You know, what overwhelms me with that vision he had was the generosity of spirit. That what he saw was the sacrifice, but the benefit, not just to the Cree, but to a much wider community. You know, when you think of the First Nations across this country and the way they've been treated to... To have that generosity of spirit is just something that overwhelms me. Yeah. Uh, sharing is such an integral part of uh, who we are, so much so that the, we have no word for thank you. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you say thank you, you're implying that somebody is doing something extraordinary. <laughs> wow. 
um, especially in the uh, sharing of food. But that was one of the things that they brought up time and again was how generous he was, especially, you know, you know, there were lean times, you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he, he'd kill a moose and he always took a portion to the next family at the next trap line, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, that was what he was known for was his generosity. Well, of course, you know, that part I've met, encountered that in Aboriginal communities across Canada was a critical part of what long-term community and survival is about, is that sharing. But, you know, when you think of the outside world that's going to benefit from that dam, that's a very uh, ungenerous community. I think, you know, that it's to the point where it's being taken advantage of. You know, uh, it's unfortunate, you know, that for me, you know, from my point of view, it's unfortunate that seems to be the only way to do it. You know, there's an abundance of wind, you know, that where we are. I'm sure if there were other um, if there were other alternatives that were presented, I'm sure they would have been looked at as well. There's also implicit in, in his statement an understanding that the world has changed and in many ways clinging to those traditional uh, uh, values may lock in youth in a way that really doesn't offered the opportunities that, that he saw coming out of this. So it was a, 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 at once a very generous statement, but also a very visionary thing that he was looking to the youth and where I think, you know, wind, for example, is a huge opportunity for Aboriginal people. Yeah. Uh, you grew up in Chisasabi. I did. So you know the impact that dams have had. I've seen it. Um, Yeah. Have we learned anything from that? Have your people learned anything from that? I would have thought that um, us as a people would have learned from that. You know, I was dumbstruck when, you know, the people agreed to allow the Rupert to be uh, diverted. I was uh, just as surprised as anybody else. You know, especially mm-hmm. given the uh, lessons and the uh, the tribulations that we've gone through from the past. So, I mean, what do you hope now it's going through from what you've learned in Chisasabi and other communities? Do you think that will affect the way that development occurs on the Rupert? So the Rupert is pretty much done for, you know, the all the construction is pretty much done. I guess, you know, they have to finish up the weirs. But in terms of the actual diversion, that's been done already. They've slashed uh, the trees from where they intend to flood. They've made the, uh, the transfer tunnel, which is under a, a lake, a three-kilometer tunnel. You know, they, they're starting to make uh, the powerhouses that'll where the Rupert will flow towards uh, towards LG2. And so I think for people, for my, my fear is that uh, the social, the cultural aspect will be lost, you know, that uh, the, we won't be able to scoop fish anymore. Well, uh, what is your hope then? Is there... Uh for this project, do you, will, will the communities in the end benefit from it? Well, I think um, it's a reality that people are living with now. Um, you can't just close your eyes and hope it goes away. It's there now. 
Um, and people, you know, I hear of people, you know, going to work and, you know, going to the camps. But it's a it's a work camp kind of um, setup, you mm -hmm. know, where you have to leave your fa friends and family for extended periods of time. You know, it's sort of like 20 days on and 10 days off kind of deal. And uh, hopefully, you know, this is another lesson, you know, for the Crees. You know, so we'll see how it goes from there. Yeah, it seems to be the story of environmentalism is even... Even though when you do win the occasional victory, it's not permanent, it's temporary. You end up battling them over and over again. Thank you very much for that. Well, thanks for having me, David. Ernie Webb is a Cree filmmaker based in Montreal. His documentary about the Rupert River is called Down the Mighty River and was broadcast on APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Water through the hydrologic cycle, evaporates, rises into the atmosphere where it flows across the planet in great rivers of vapor, condenses into clouds, and falls to earth as rain. Over and over, in an endless cycle, water cartwheels around the planet. And we are part of the hydrologic cycle, drinking water, absorbing it into every nook and cranny of our bodies, then releasing it back with each breath and tear in sweat, urine, and feces. We are water, and whatever we do to water eventually impacts us. Knowing the role that water plays for all forms of life, what creature claiming to be intelligent would treat water as a garbage can for our most toxic chemicals and all the waste that eventually ends up in the oceans. We are water, and whatever we do to water, we do to ourselves. This episode was originally broadcast in 2010 and was produced by Nikola Lukšić with Tina Pitaway, Pedro Mendez, Holly Dressel, and Anne Penman. Next time on Suzuki's Survival Guide, how our bodies interact with our Earth. What happens to our body and our world when we eat, grow, live, and die? You know, I just like to look for a great big attractive, pretty rock. Now put it up here in a oak tree and I don't have any um, anxiety or any or any feeling about dreading death. And uh, I think, well, wouldn't it be nice if that uh, oak tree, which uh, they have uh, deep tap roots, would ever reach my remains and uh, the tree would take nourishment and it's kind of like, well, I never died, really. <laughs> this series was produced with help from Sean Foley. Lisa Ayuso is our web producer. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.